1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. You can join me tomorrow night, Thursday at 8 p.m. for our next virtual book club event where we are going to continue the WDET book club. And this summer we have been reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, you can register for the event that is happening again tomorrow at 8 at WDET.org slash events. Tomorrow we are going to talk with a professor from University of Wisconsin-Madison about how the social and political movements we see today are reflective of many of the themes that are present in Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. You can also go and join the WDET Book Club Facebook group uh, where there is a conversation going on every day about Invisible Man and the themes inside that book that are really relevant today. And of course, you can hear us here on the program talking about those themes as well. Again, WDET.org slash events tomorrow night at 8 p.m. That is going to be our last, in fact, virtual book club event. Up first today, does concern about the natural environment exist only if people's basic needs are already met? And is concern for the climate a luxury good? For a long time, that has been an assumption that we have made about climate change. However, thanks to a new survey, we're now realizing that's not really the case. Finding from the newly released Climate Insights 2020 shows that the number of Americans who are passionate about climate change is significantly rising. And the issue seems to be more important than ever when it comes to the political arena and the decisions that people are going to make in November. Here to talk more about the survey and the role of the environment in the 2020 election is John A. Krosnick. He is a professor of communication, political science, and psychology at Stanford University and the leader of the Climate Insights Project. Professor Krosnick, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Lovely to be back on WDET. Yes, great to have you here. So briefly tell us, what does the Climate Insights Survey tell us about the public's concern about the natural environment? Well, as you suggested, um, we all know, of course, that the country over the last few months has been so dramatically disrupted and focused on an unprecedented economic challenge at the same time that, uh, for most of us alive today, this is the most significant public health challenge that we've ever seen before. And social scientists for a long time have thought that um, when a huge issue, not to mention more than one issue, erupts on the, on the radar of Americans, um, that uh, their cognitive and emotional focus shifts to that in a way that leads them to downplay the significance of everything else. And um, what uh, we have seen remarkably in this instance is that there's no evidence at all that Americans have turned away from climate change as an issue. Um, what may surprise you is that since our very first national surveys back in the late 1990s, we've seen huge majorities of Americans agreeing with one another, uh, Democrats, Republicans, independents, about the existence and threat of climate change. That number has not dropped at all. For example, in the new survey, 81% of Americans said they thought that the Earth has been warming over the last 100 years. Um, and the, what we see is evidence of uh, actually an unprecedented increase 
in the fraction of Americans who are really personally passionate about this issue. Um, most issues uh, that we see in the country that are kind of uh, big issues in public debate um, uh, it tend to attract passion from relatively small groups of Americans. So take the issue of gun control or the issue of race relations, that those issues that are obviously tremendously important for the country and for the world um, tend to attract attention, um, a passion, from only 10 to 15 to maybe 20% of Americans at most. Mm. Um, but uh, at the moment, we've seen that passionate group focused on climate change uh, surge up to 25% of the country. So one out of every four Americans are passionate on this. Yeah. So explain this idea of climate and climate change being a luxury good to Americans. What do we mean? When well, we that, say that? Uh, just as as you described, the notion of the of luxury good in this case is the it comes really from um, something many people may remember from introductory psychology courses, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. uh, Maslow proposed the idea that um, w we as living organisms have to focus first and foremost on satisfying basic survival needs, meaning we've got to have a, a shelter, we've got to have food, we've got to have a, a flow of income to cover the cost of life, and we have to feel safe and secure. And as you know, the, the last four or five months have made so many people uh, not feel safe, not feel secure, and, and to lose income, businesses to close, so many uh, dramatic impacts. That, uh, that everyone has felt, whether it's the employees of businesses or the owners of businesses or the family members of people who are working or were working. And so that kind of trauma, we have thought, um, would lead people uh, as individuals and, and as Americans to be so focused on those big problems that they can't afford the luxury of worrying about whether some butterfly species far away is going to become extinct someday because of something that that you know is happening now hmm. and so that's kind of the luxury good hypothesis and we're just absolutely seeing no evidence at all that uh... when people are understandably prioritizing um, solving economic problems addressing problems of race relations in the country um, solving the covid crisis that they now care less about climate change, they believe less in climate change, that they are less supportive of government doing things about climate change. We're just not seeing that. And is one of the reasons that's true that the discussion about climate change has changed so much recently? I mean, we aren't talking about rare species of butterflies or, or obscure kinds of concepts with uh, the effects of climate change on the planet. We're talking about things that people are actually experiencing in their own lives and the way that those things uh, change the way that we can live on the planet. So uh, just as an example, and, and, and again, I know that it's dangerous sometimes to look at weather and say that that's about climate, and I know the two things are really different, but this, this land-based hurricane that was uh, that that took place in Iowa recently uh, is something that that I can't remember happening in my lifetime something of that scale uh, in a place like Iowa is the attention to climate change about the things that are happening that that are surprising and don't look like the the climate that most of us have understood to be, you know, the reality on Earth for our lifetimes. 
Right, you're you're absolutely right that more than about three quarters of Americans, three out of all every four Americans, said in our recent survey that they believe that they have actually seen the effects of climate change already happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also true that Americans um, view the the devastating effects that most of them perceive on the horizon as um, really being issues for future generations rather than for themselves. So I think you're right that people are seeing this sort of thing very, very close up. In fact, uh, I am only seven miles away now in my home from a huge and devastating fire, mm-hmm. wildfire that happened here in California, and we were on the verge of evacuation from our home a couple of days ago. And so uh, the challenge, of course, is that wildfires have been happening in California for centuries. And there's nothing new about wildfires happening. But when Americans look at those kinds of uh, events, uh, devastating floods, Hurricane Katrina, wildfires like this, they now know from climate scientists that at least those scientists believe those events will be happening more often and will be more devastating as a result of climate change. And I think you're exactly right that those firsthand experiences do contribute to people's recognition that they want something done about this. Mm. I'm talking with John Krosnick, a professor of communication, political science, and psychology at Stanford University, and the leader of a project called Climate Insights 2020, surveying American public opinion on climate change and the environment. We're talking about the findings of that study, which suggests that our concern about climate change is more intense than we might have guessed that it would be. It's also pretty intense around the question of who will lead us, which we will be deciding in November at, uh, at the ballot box. Um, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what role climate change has in your political decision-making. Have you been looking at, for instance, Joe Biden's climate proposal, which is being described as one of the most dramatic and progressive of any presidential uh, campaign. What do you think of it? And what do you think are the biggest issues for you going into this election around climate change? How far up is the climate crisis in your list of priorities as you start to make decisions about who you might vote for in November? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, uh, and we'll try to get those into the conversation as well. Uh, before we go to listeners, uh, John, I want to I talk about politics and climate change and how the two issues always kind of converge as we get closer to elections. Is there something particular about this year or this time that makes those concerns more acute as we get into the fall campaigns? Well, there's a, a stark contrast between Donald Trump and Joe Biden mm-hmm. in their positions on climate change, which allows Americans to vote based on that issue easily. Um, by contrast, in 2008, when Barack Obama and John McCain were competing for the White House, um, folks might remember that this was a remarkable moment in history when the two of them disagreed about almost everything except climate change. Uh, McCain had been very much in support of doing something to address climate change. He was a believer in it and its threat. And uh, in that way, he and President Obama agreed um, about that issue. And there's every reason to imagine that after the election, 
um, something big would happen because of that unity of the leaders of the parties. Right now, we have a very, very different situation where um, President Trump has been uh, remarkably effective in pursuing his own agenda when it comes to climate change in particular, rolling back more than 100 um, pieces of uh, law that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and uh, reduce the likelihood of severe global warming in the future. He has a strong position. He's expressed support for generating electricity from coal, which natural scientists say is the electricity generation method most likely to, to cause global warming in the future. And as you said, Joe Biden is very much on the other side of the issue. He has said that global warming is a, a profound threat. And he's not just talking in general terms. He has put out a very detailed package of policies that he proposes to implement to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and reduce global warming in the future. Um, and so those passionate Americans, that group of 25% of people who wake up every morning thinking about this issue, are given a very clear opportunity of who to vote for. It makes it easy for their vote to be pulled. So any of those folks who are uh, otherwise torn about how to vote um, have a very powerful pull in this particular election um, in the direction of Mr. Biden. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Billy in Gross Point Park. Billy, welcome to hey. the program. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up this uh, difference between, uh, you know, basing your decision on uh, collected data over hundreds of years versus just well, shooting from the hip and thinking that, you know, whatever you wish to believe <laughs> is or wish you do not believe is probably true. If you can get a circle of people around you saying, yeah, that sounds right to me. We've never had a problem with it before. I mean, things are changing and it's obvious and it takes some study in order to realize that this is even happening mm. and then also uh you know time for one individual human being is completely different than time for the entire planet the the planet goes through changes over vast amounts of time that most people that live their entire lives never even notice sure and there's also uh you uh just being so proud of your own ability to intuitively decide whether you see something going wrong or not is absurd because the best ideas that have ever been, uh, the best discoveries, especially in the last hundred years of physics and science and biology and everything, are often counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. the, the greatest scientists in our last hundred years realized things and had to commit to them because they realized that what they originally had thought because of their studies was wrong. Yeah. They were just simply wrong. Even right. Einstein did not believe in particle physics down to the atomic level. And he had to he, be shown, said, yeah, right. He called, it, he called it spooky action at a yeah. distance and said that it was magic <laughs> and could not possibly be true. And nowadays we use quantum physics in order for me to talk to you over these phone lines right. <laughs> through right. the air with no wires or anything. Like <laughs> All right, that. Billy, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and that and that perspective. Uh, John Krasnick, this idea of convincing people with data and getting them 
to walk away from assumptions, I think is at the crux of our problems with climate change in the past, that, that there, there are so many things that are available for people to, I guess, wrap their arms around as anecdotal or experiential evidence that they could say, well, it's, it's just not, it's not something I need to be worried about. That does seem to be changing as experiences, uh, as we were talking about, change and that more people are able to see uh, that, that climate change has an effect. But there's also, I feel like, a, a, a surge in the confidence, perhaps, about data and science and what it tells us about these things. Uh, y- yes, but you and, and your caller are both right uh, about something very important about the country on this issue, that uh, at this point in history, uh, about two-thirds of the country trust climate scientists when they talk about what's going on with the planet over a period of a century, and about one-third are skeptical uh, about climate scientists. And those folks aren't people who say, um, the climate scientists are uh, uh, conspiring to mislead people. They just say, look, science is inherently a process of discovery. It takes a while to figure things out. Just because there's a headline today that says coffee causes pancreatic cancer, that doesn't mean I need to st- stop drinking coffee because scientists often find out initial study results are wrong. Um, and so the, the folks who trust climate scientists, that two-thirds of the country, has been a very, very stable number over the last 25 years. Mm. We've seen almost no change in it, despite the fact that, as you know, there have been attempts um, from Washington and elsewhere to discredit scientists. But Americans haven't shown any decline in faith in scientists at all. And those people who are are trusters um, have uh, been particularly comfortable accepting what the natural scientists have said about the existence and threat of climate change. It's that one-third of people who don't trust scientists, when we call them up, for example, and ask them to tell us whether they believe that the world has been warming over the last hundred years, they've got to come up with an answer, but in a way that that it doesn't rely on climate scientists. And so what we've seen is those people, just as your caller suggested, are particularly driven by what they see world temperatures doing recently. And so, for example, following 2010, which was a record warm year for um, the world, um, that group of, of people who aren't high in trust in scientists were especially likely to say, oh, hmm, interesting, I guess it, maybe this global warming is happening. Hmm. And of course, you know, a record high year is informative. Um, what's a little ironic about that is, of course, figuring out what the world's temperature is at any given moment is the result of a scientific process also. <laughs> and so those folks, but those folks are kind of more comfortable trusting uh, what they perceive to be thermometers rather than necessarily what scientific experts say. Hmm. Let's go to quickly to uh, Daniel. Daniel in Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on the air again. You know, I listen to your show all the time and I hear a lot of these issues come back to one thing. It really comes back to the unfortunate issue that this thing has become a political football between the left and the right. And I think it's, I think it's inflated by the fact that all the fossil fuel industries are allowed to pay off our politicians. They're driving the legislation. They're driving. It's unfortunate that they're 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 funding the campaigns of the right right now and the right is standing up for them why do we need why should a corporation 
be allowed to pollute the air for billions and billions and billions of dollars in profit. Until we fix Washington, this will continually be a campaign partisan issue, and they're going to support the right. I'd like to see how much money they've contributed to the right campaign during this election period. Mm. Daniel, I, I really appreciate the call and, and those thoughts. There's no question that, you know, in this country, uh, I, I think it's unfortunate, but the, the idea that money equals speech and is deserving of the same kinds of protections as speech is is a big problem in, in, in politics. Uh, John Krosnick, I wonder if you can talk about the effect that has on our views on, on climate change. Well, you, you both will be interested to know um, what political scientists who've studied contributions from corporations to candidates have discovered, um, which is quite remarkable. That you might think that, um, for example, the fossil fuel industry would um, give contributions predominantly to conservative candidates who would be especially likely to uh, prefer very little government limitation of their business activities. But, in fact, that's not what happens. What we've seen in uh, very extensive studies of campaign contributions is uh, something more striking, that what corporations tend to do is to give money to candidates who they think are going to win. In other words, incumbents uh, are very likely to be reelected, mm. and those incumbents, whether they are Democrats or Republicans, are very likely to get sizable contributions from corporations, including the fossil fuel industry. And in races where uh, polling shows that it's a very tight race and it's not clear who's going to win, you might think that those corporations would say, perfect, this is the opportunity to give money to the representative who will lean in our direction more. But they don't. They give money to both candidates. Hmm. And the logic of what I've just told you is really making sure that after whoever wins, wins, they know they got money from the fossil fuel industry, whether they are on the liberal side or the conservative side of the spectrum. And so that is the, the striking way in which money does bring power after elections sure. to the extent that elected representatives pay attention to who supported their campaigns. Yeah, and that it's incumbency that matters more than party label. I think that's a really important distinction to make. Okay, John Krosnick, Professor of Communication and Political Science and Psychology at Stanford University. It was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about climate change in the election with two local voices who spent a lot of time thinking about this topic. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Here's an update from WDET General Manager Mary Zatina. We are making headway in our campaign to raise the money needed to meet WDET's budget. But as a community, we still have $1.4 million to raise before our fiscal year ends on September 30th. If you stepped up and made a donation, thank you. More than 500 listeners have joined WDET for the first time, and almost 700 have renewed their membership after years of not giving. Supporting the news, music, and conversations you hear on WDET every day is, as Andalisi might say, essential to keeping news, arts, and music in Detroit alive. 
and for our ability to make sure it's there whenever you want to listen, on the radio, on your mobile app, on demand, and online. If you can give and haven't yet become a member of WDET, please do it now at WDET.org. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about climate change and the way we think about climate change, how we prioritize that issue over or under other issues as we go into a fall campaign, which will culminate in a presidential election in November. And now we want to talk a little more about how climate change issues play out locally and how our political decisions about uh, climate change will play out locally. Joining us for that conversation are two people who are no strangers to this show and, of course, no strangers to the issue. Kimberly Hill Knott is an environmental policy advocate and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting. Kimberly, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, yes. Stephen. Uh, and also with us is Nick Schreck, who is Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at the Detroit Mercy School of Law. Nick, always great to have you here as well. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be with you and Kimberly. So I want to start with your reactions to the Democratic National Convention in relation to the amount of time that was spent discussing environmental concerns and the climate crisis. And then we're going to talk about what's happening this week in Charlotte, where the Republicans are gathering to talk uh, about their plans for the country. But let's start with the Democrats. Uh, Kimberly, what was your reaction to last week's convention? Oh, my goodness. It was just uh, so diverse on so many different levels from uh, the areas in, uh, in which were highlighted, the geographic areas, as well as the topics. And you could, uh, what was also exciting is to see how many of the people talked about climate change. That was really surprising. Um, from everyday people to elected officials, and then the segment that they actually did on climate change and environmental issues uh, was impressive. You know, one of the things that I, I did comment on, though, was that I thought it would have really been good to uh, go into the community and really show the impact of climate change and uh, how environmental injustice is really being portrayed in, in these vulnerable communities. And and unfortunately, that did not happen. But everything uh, else was really impressive in terms of the amount of time and attention that was focused on climate change in particular. Hmm. Uh, Nick Shrek, the plans that Joe Biden has unveiled for what his administration would do with regard to climate change are really being hailed by environmental advocates as quite progressive. Did we see that reflected in the convention that the Democrats put on last week? Well, I mean, Kimberly's right that there was a lot of good mention of climate change as, as a, a threat that is current, ongoing, and something that we need to be focused on solving today and in the future. And and you're right. I mean, that the plans that the, the um, the Biden campaign has put together and what would be part of a Biden administration are robust. And, you know, they, they follow in a lot of ways a roadmap that was um, developed during the Obama administration. And a lot of the things that 
I mean, a lot, one, one thing that you have the advantage of running against an incumbent is that you can point out things that that incumbent has done and say that you would reverse those or change those. And so a lot of, um, you know, Biden's plan is rightfully um, looking at, you know, rejoining the Paris Agreement, right, to, to commit us to greenhouse gas reductions on a global scale. You know, looking at changing a lot of these rules and regulations that govern our federal agencies to make sure that we're considering climate change in all of our governmental decisions. So a lot of that is, is included. And, and then the other piece that Kimberly also hit on is, is how there is a desire, I think, among the Biden campaign to focus on environmental justice. And that's a good thing. And in, and in this time where there's the, the ongoing fight for racial justice in this country, you know, drawing the links between environmental harm, environmental degradation, um, and really the, the lack of, of resources that are shared in environmental justice communities, um, I mean, I think that's a good way to kind of draw that connection between climate, the environment, and uh, racial justice, and how, you know, the Biden campaign is trying to address all of those at once. Mm. So let's talk now about what's happening in Charlotte, where the Republicans have gathered for their political convention and are talking about many of the same issues as the Democrats. Somehow, I don't think climate change rates quite as highly on their agenda as it did last week. But I'd love to get your reactions to what we've seen so far. Nick, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating um, development that the the, the Republicans uh, did not actually publish, um, a, you know, a party platform. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's that's something that normally, you know, we could look at and say, OK, they're they're going to address this. They're not going to address that as part of their, their plank, you know, their platform that they're running on. You know, they didn't do that. Right. Um, so basically what they're running on is President Trump's um, record and what he would do in another term. And so I think, you know, what we have to go on and, you know, maybe Kimberly has some different insights, but I think what we really have to go on is, OK, what. What has the Trump administration done in terms of climate change? Um, what are they likely to continue doing um, if uh, reelected for another term? And so I think that's we're kind of left at looking at, like, OK, how have they reacted to the Keystone oil pipeline out west? Right. How have they reacted to trying to fast track some of these fossil fuel um, extraction and development proposals? You know, those are the kinds of things that I think they would continue to do, sort of double down on fossil fuels rather than uh, focusing on renewable energy, because that's that's what we've seen demonstrated from, you know, the first term. So I think it's really what we're left to analyze is kind of what they've done and what they're likely to do if reelected. Mm. Uh, Kimberly, the Trump administration has not been particularly friendly to uh, the EPA or to environmental causes over the last four years. The, the president is, I think, fairly described as a climate denier in, in, in many regards. Um, is there anything that we're seeing in the convention or in the the, the reelection campaign that suggests uh, there should that, that we should be more hopeful about a second term for President Trump? Or are there things that signal that uh, if you are an environmental advocate, things could actually get worse? Oh, I definitely think that they will get worse. Uh, there is no indication that. Um, President Trump will give any attention to addressing climate change. I think that he still believes that it's a hoax. And I think that what will happen is that market demand will have to trump Trumpism. And so uh, as more and more business leaders, um, in particular, particularly when you look at the uh, contributions to these presidential candidates, 
it is those people that we really have to turn our attention to because once they begin to also uh, join hands with folks who have been most impacted by climate change and uh, all of the in other environmental degradations, uh, that is when we uh, will begin to see change. One of the things that I noted uh, during the uh, Republican convention is how often black people, black and brown people have become a talking point. And wouldn't it be nice if we would move beyond uh, being a talking point? And mm. one of the ways that he could uh, address the issues um, uh, effectively and genuinely is to focus on climate change and environmental injustice and to look at the impact that, that his decisions are really having on these communities that he supposedly cares so much about. Mm. And so I think that the, the, the discussion has to be framed differently. And we, which is what my company is doing, have to bring more of those voices to the table. Mm. I'm talking with Kimberly Hill, not an environmental policy advocate, and Nick Shrek, associate dean of Exper experiential education and an associate professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law about climate change and how we are reacting to the idea of climate change right now. How we're reacting in a political sense, given that this is a presidential year. There are two presidential campaigns underway. We'll have an election in November to decide who's going to lead the country for the next four years. And also how climate change impacts our lives here in southeast Michigan and what we ought to be thinking about and doing to blunt the effects of climate change on our lives. As always, we want to include you in the conversation here. Call and tell us what environmental issues are most important to you right now. Are you concerned about water access and safety? Are you concerned about air pollution? Uh, and tell us which candidate's climate approach or agenda is the one that appeals the most to you. Are you somebody who believes that Joe Biden's really intense and progressive ideas are the way to fight climate change? Or do you think that the president is uh, of the United States right now is right, that uh, uh, maybe there is too much attention to, to climate change and we ought to not overreact? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to work them into our conversation here. Let's go to Naeem in Detroit. Naeem, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you guys opened the show with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the strategies. Um, I'm not sure how intentional it is um, that Republicans in particular have used um, to reinforce the need and dependence on fossil fuels and legitimize it as a job provider. So it's really unfortunate that hmm. a lot of Americans who might be more willing to take on climate change issues simply choose not to because the trade-off is the fear. Economic fear. Jobs. Sure. Yeah. And um, I think anything from mask wearing to racism to climate change have become such polarized issues um, that it's a real indicator of how toxic just the community and the society within the United States has become. Uh, when you look at those kinds of issues across the entire planet and yeah. compare attitudes here in the United States to other countries, it really shows how culturally we have, we have shifted to valuing 
our own comfort, our own convenience, our own immediate gratification, um, uh, taking pride in being closed minded and mm-hmm. cultish and making decisions based on fear or financial gain rather than valuing community, environmental health, caring for the planet, caring for people you don't know. Right. Um, and yeah. I think that it's, it's unfortunate. So the Democratic Party has the Green New Deal and Joe Biden, of course, has an entire agenda built around. Even if we take on fossil fuels, we have a plan for creating jobs. We have a plan for cleaning up the air, cleaning up water and developing U.S. infrastructure. And that still is not capable of resonating with a lot of people because all they can focus on day to day is like, I want to go and potentially work in this coal mine or this landfill or, Or you know, this refinery. Sure. Uh, Naeem, I I, I, I love uh, that that you called and and shared that perspective uh, with us. Uh, Kimberly Hill-Not, you were just talking about the Mm -hmm. change, the potential change in the kind of economic and business approach to this as a leverage point for for changing, for instance, the Republican approach to this or putting even more pressure on 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 Democrats. But react to what Naeem is saying here. Yeah, Naeem, hi. I certainly agree with what you're saying. And, you know, as you were talking and even before I thought about economic justice and one of the things that is so keenly different about the platform of the Republicans versus that of the Democrats is their focus on that. And so when you look at just transition and uh, how all encompassing that can be, job training and pre-apprenticeship programs and reducing the energy burden where you're paying two mortgages for one house, but also looking at ways to lift people out of poverty, providing a pathway out of poverty by providing job training uh, 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 programs and opportunities in addition to investment. And so there's so many opportunities to get this right with the right leader. And we just have to have the right people at the table. Additionally, One of the things that I wanted to talk about that also impacts black and brown communities is infrastructure. And so we've been talking about developing an infrastructure plan for far too long. But when you look at the $760 billion plan that the uh, Democrats just introduced uh, not too long ago, earlier this year, uh, climate change is at the front of that infrastructure plan. And uh, Vice President Biden also talks about it. So there's also an opportunity for us to not only improve the quality of life with a comprehensive infrastructure plan. But in that quality of life, it will also uh, include or lead to improved health uh, and economic conditions because Mm. of the jobs that can be created. We need to take another quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about climate change. I want to thank Nick Schreck, Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law for being here. Nick, it's always great to have you and your insights with us. Thank you very thank much you. for coming by. We're going to keep Kimberly Hill not, and we're going to add Justin Anwino, community organizer at the Sierra Club, to the conversation when we come back. And we're going to get to more of your calls, 313 1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. 
This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks very much for tuning in. We're talking about climate change, its effect on our political decisions, and its effect on our lives here in Southeast Michigan this hour. We've got Kimberly Hillnott, environmental policy advocate and president and CEO of Future Insight Consulting with us. And I also want to welcome Justin Anueno, a community organizer at the Sierra Club, to the conversation. Justin, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, uh, Justin, I want to start this segment with you. You were featured in a promotional video about climate change that aired as part of the DNC last week. Uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I was. I you know, previously was not involved with, with the DNC, but decided to get involved because I feel like climate change is just such an important issue for this election. And so I decided to serve on the Climate Crisis Council with the DNC, and through that experience, ended up being asked to, uh, to join in a video talking about the importance of climate change, talking about opportunities for jobs as we tackle climate change, and talking about uh, the importance of environmental justice in our fight. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the video is the disproportionate impact on communities of color uh, by uh, by climate change. Uh, talk more about how that plays out in your work here in, in Detroit. Yeah. So I, th- I think nationwide we're seeing that communities that are located near toxic sites, that are you know, located in, in areas that have a tendency to flood. These areas tend to be low income. They tend to be black and brown. And these are the, the communities that are going to face the brunt of the challenge when it comes to climate change. And so I think locally we're seeing, you know, the only refinery in the state of Michigan located in Detroit. You have uh, U.S. Ecology, a hazardous waste processing plant located on the east side of Detroit. And so I am concerned about just the disproportionate impact um, when it comes to pollution that communities that are vulnerable are already experiencing. And so I think addressing climate change, we can't just address uh, climate change by lowering emissions. We have to make sure that we're impacting people's everyday lives. And, you know, for for vulnerable communities um, that are already exposed, that means directly addressing the health impact of pollution, directly addressing the need for jobs in our communities. And I think addressing climate change gives us an opportunity to do both. Hmm. Uh, Kimberly, you you talk a lot about that intersectionality between climate change and justice issues. Uh, uh, it's clear that we have a long way to go in dismantling the, the systemic racism that powers those things. And as part of that, you're helping to organize a social justice march that's happening this Friday. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, sure. So we are going to, I'm the director of policy at Perfecting Church, mm-hmm. uh, director of the political relations community uh, <laughs> department at Perfecting Church. And one of the things that we're going to do is um, we are going to march for justice and we're going to pray for peace. And so uh, we're going to do, you know, really focus on the intersectionality of both because we, you know, understand uh, the power of prayer, but we also understand that justice um, must be addressed um, from the pulpit 
as well as from other sectors. So we are looking forward to a peaceful march. Um, we are very disturbed by what just happened in my neck of the woods, uh, Wisconsin. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm. And to hear about the young man who was shot uh, uh, seven times, it's just, there's no excuse. Mm. And so when is enough going to be enough? And in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, I think many of us should be at the point of being, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so it's we have to do something. And so we don't expect this to be the end of our engagement in social justice. But uh, really, uh, I don't even want to say the beginning, but certainly uh, making uh, having a more pronounced voice in this space because it uh, demands our attention. Hmm. Uh, I want to go back to the phones here. And again, 313-577-1019 is the number if you would like to join us. Gloria in Southwest Detroit, you're up next. Gloria? Are you there, Gloria? Yes, I am. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, good morning. Thank you. And good morning, Kim and um, Nick. We've worked together many, many times. What I, um, I'm happy to hear that you brought in this whole theme of intersectionality Mm. and in reference to not only social justice, environmental justice, but I would broaden it to everything because everything is connected. So food, the quality of air, the quality of soil, the quality of life. Mm. And I was thinking in terms of generally the two conventions or the, the democratic provided, in my opinion, a, a broader opportunity to make all of these connections among the different issues, both affecting humans and affecting the planet, which to me is the same thing. Mm. And the whole sense of uh, the planet, as if we put it in the center, which often we don't do, we, we realize that the planet, everything in it, in its own way, is alive. Everything in it is connected. Everything in it has some intelligence. And we're all kin, K-I-N. Mm. So the Democratic Convention created more of a we, more of a sense of all the different aspects that with however you come into it, you eventually are connecting the whole. Right. Whereas so far, lastly, the Republican Convention is um, it's very focused on it. one human being, and no matter how amazing a human being can be, he or she doesn't have it all together. So yeah. that's the difference I see. Gloria, that's a really that's a, that's a really so fascinating fun. that's a really fascinating way to think about the difference between the two conventions and to think about their uh, approaches uh, to these issues. Justin, you you talk a lot about um, connecting climate change not just to uh, social justice in terms of race uh, but social justice in terms of other things and that's one of the things that Gloria was 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 highlighting there the the importance of understanding uh, how this all ties in with other kinds of uh, justice issues right absolutely and I think you know there are a lot of reasons why Republicans and Democrats differ on this and certainly taking an intersectional approach is, is good politically. But I also just want to say that as a young person, it's, it's not an optional thing. I mean, you know, in the span of 10 years during, you know, our, our formative years, we faced crisis after crisis that was connected um, to racial justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. We faced crises related to climate change and uh, wildfires and hurricanes. 
and we face you know crises on the global scale um, in terms of the wars that we've been involved in. And so, you know, going through those crises after crises, I think at such a formative time in our in our upbringing, I think made us a lot more interested in taking on issues in an intersectional manner. And I think on climate change, you know, what I would describe as one one of the biggest challenges we face over the next century. I just think that it's, an, it's extremely important that we get people engaged, and I think the best way to do that is by focusing on issues um, that connect to climate change, but that people may not see readily. Um, so thinking about, you know, school performance is directly tied to the environment that children learn in. Mm-hmm. So pollution uh, ties into education in a way that people hadn't, don't typically think about. Healthcare costs ties into... Um, you know, people having to pay for prescription drugs because of asthma and other, other health conditions tied into pollution. Yes, um, yes. You know, property values as well when you have to refurbish your home storm after storm. So I really am excited that people are interested in, in building this um, intersectional narrative. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Kimberly Hill Knott and Justin Onwenu, it was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thank you very much. For joining us. Uh, thank you, you Steve. I have yeah. one other thing that I yeah. would love to Go right say. Ahead. Yeah. So our march is going to be on Friday, August 28th mm-hmm. at the corner of Woodward Avenue and Martin Luther King Boulevard mm-hmm. at 1 p.m. So we would love to see you. And I think that technical assistance needs to be offered for hazard mitigation plans as cities are developing those plans um, oh. and, and, and helping them to uh, incorporate climate change or yeah. climate yeah. adaptation. Yeah. And that's something I think is missing okay. Okay. from the platform. Kimberly Hill Knott and Justin Anwenu, again, really great to have you here, uh, as always, for uh, for these conversations. Okay. Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. Remember to join me tomorrow at 8 p.m. for our next and final virtual book club event. We have been reading and discussing Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison all summer, having guests here on the show and talking about it on the WDET Book Club Facebook group. Uh, This event tomorrow, we're going to talk about how social and political movements that we're seeing right now in the United States reflect a lot of the themes that are in the book Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. You just have to go to wdet.org slash events to register for that event. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tomorrow we're going to have a conversation about education funding equity with Crane's Detroit Business Senior Editor, Chad Livengood. We'll see you then.